From legendary locals we all know to people you should get to know. Follow Ipswich Today on your favourite app and never miss an episode. Or go to ipswichtoday.com.au Coming up, a week after the state election, the count continues and so does analysis of the result. Are minor parties becoming irrelevant? Has the influence of social media peaked? Or are some candidates to blame for going overboard before and during the campaign? In this episode, an independent view from political expert Professor Jeff Cockfield from the University of Southern Queensland. It's Friday, November 6, 2020, and I'm Alan Roebuck. Welcome to Ipswich Today, which acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which it is produced and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. Joining me to take a closer look at the results and what it might mean for the minor parties is Honorary Professor Jeff Cockfield from the University of Southern Queensland's Institute for Resilient Regions. Thank you for speaking with Ipswich today, Jeff. Thank you very much. It's almost a week since the election. There's been a lot of commentary about the strong result for Labor. I'd like to talk more about the minor parties and voting patterns across the regions. But first, what's your take on the overall result? Well, look, I think it is a bit of a surprise. We we, we had very limited evidence in terms of uh, polling to decide, uh, you know, which way it was. So there was no evidence of any great swing. So um, I thought we were looking at a very narrow Labor victory or a minority government of some complexion which was more likely to be Labor. So a fairly clear win to uh, Labor is a bit of a surprising outcome. With such a strong turnout at pre-poll and the record number of postal votes, have we changed permanently from a traditional election day to an election fortnight? Yes, I think so. Like there are circumstances this time round that it increased that with um, obviously uh, the COVID situation, so plenty of people not wanting to uh, go into high contact situations. But I think uh, once people see, oh, that wasn't that difficult, I could just um, uh, you know send in my thing, get a postal vote, and send in my thing online, get a postal vote in a way, or I could wander down at a convenient time to a uh, you know one of the early pre-poll areas. So I think we are looking at uh, a high preference for, um, you know, maybe a third. We will probably uh, a bit higher than that, more than a half, or probably pre-polls of some sort. Um, and so I think we might be settling in for, you know, at least a third of people are thinking they could uh, do it in a more convenient way. Well, once the genie's out of the bottle, it would be hard to take that off people. That's right. It's right. If you give them a convenience, and then and I know there are sort of arguments of people who go, "Oh no, I like to roll up and you know have the democracy sausage and all that kind of thing." But I think this one suits uh, the modern living and the, the convenience argument, as well as uh, you know people. Um, and I think there's a theory that uh, the ones who go early have already decided, mm. obviously, mm. Uh, and then. So there might be some undecideds later. And this could affect campaigning in particular, and we did see some of that. We saw some much bigger promises coming earlier in the piece uh, with this campaign, you know, quite big spending ones, and not really anything too major in those last few days. 
And I think it also brings into question the idea of an election launch in the last week or just on the cusp of the last week. You know, it really looks very dated as an idea now. It certainly does. So campaigning will change going forward and they're going to have to rethink their entire strategies. Yes. So you're going to have to have some very clear early messages. You're going to have to roll out some significant uh, policies. And then what I think we saw this time was a sort of a tidy up, uh, you know, where things where they might have been getting into a little bit of bother or a bit questionable in the last week, what the what both parties, both major parties tended to do was to start to say, oh, well, this is what we really meant or this is how we would do that. Starting to sort of uh, like more like a chess game of um, the other party does something and then, uh, you know, we'll make an additional move to sort of counteract that as the campaign goes on. Um, and I think, you know, there were particular circumstances this time. So uh, it, was an, uh, it was an election fought very much in the political centre. And I think a lot of that was to do with sort of historical circumstances for the LNP and COVID as well. Apart from postal and pre-poll numbers, were there any other records set at the election that you know of? Well, uh, first time I think we've had two female leaders of major parties of uh, going uh, going head to head. So that, that was certainly unusual. Um, and I think uh, again that uh, Queensland. Uh, you know, I hate to add to the myth, but Queensland is different, <laughs> um, and and that is that city and regional effect. We are the most regionalised state, and that makes it very difficult to uh, identify uniform swings. And so we have the swinging uh, one way in the region, a little bit more to the LNP, and we had uh, swinging to Labor in the southeast. And I think what was interesting to me was that both parties increased their share of the vote. It's just that Labor increased theirs a good bit more. We've seen different voting patterns across the state, from the Greens in Inner Brisbane to Canada's Australian Party. Why are these two parties strong only in certain areas? Well, I think it's all about your uh, demographics, so, and there are some other special factors in there as well. Let's start with the Greens. The Greens are one of the enduring uh, minor parties. Minor parties in Australia don't have a great history. Uh, the Greens are showing a great deal of resilience, and I think the secret to their uh, perseverance is they have a reasonable ideological coherence about what they stand for, uh, and they are generally are recruiting people who have a sort of collective attitude to things, who will get in and volunteer and do stuff so you can sustain your organisation. And then what they've done is uh, identify their particular demographic, and that's you know a little bit stereotypical, but usually it's younger, professional, mm. higher educated, and so on. And where are they living? Well, they're living in the very, very near city suburbs, and that's where we see them having success in both in Victoria at federal level uh, and state level, and now in Brisbane as well. So Maywar and um, South Brisbane are, are really cliche green territory, you know, and it's all, all kind of lattes and alternatives and so on. So yes. they really are fitting the stereotype. What is interesting, though, the Greens are contesting across the whole state which is a tremendous effort, but really they're concentrating on those um, uh, stereotypical suburbs and then they're hoping to work outwards from there. Now, probably um, their votes have slipped slightly in total, but to me the Greens 
I stuck in a range of maybe 6 to 11% of the total vote. Um, that hasn't shifted strongly for probably 20 years or so. Uh, but they can be quite effective in winning a seat here and there. And they have a, they have a story to tell. You know, they're going to sit sort of somewhat to the left of Labor and uh, send out a signal that uh, Labor can't ignore environmental matters in particular. Now, the Cata Party uh, have some differences there. The way to think about them is they are uh, both a personality party and minor parties have a number of sort of um, reasons for existence. Some are personality parties uh, built around particular people and, and you could argue we have three of those in Queensland. Uh, you know, uh, One Nation being one of them and uh, United Australia Party being another and Cata Party being a third. So they are a personality party. But most critically, they are also a regional party. They are very much a North Queensland party, and they ha- they are targeting their resources to North Queensland, and that's what they did with, I think, 13 candidates, 13 or 15 candidates this time. So that's their strategy. They have a name, but they might actually be able to endure because, yes, the name is important, but, of course, Bob Catterson, uh, Bob Catter Senior, uh, and then we'll have uh, Robbie Catter as well. So that name could continue on for quite some time. Well, I would describe the Catters as a political dynasty, Jeff, because it began in 1966 when Robbie Catter's grandfather uh, was elected, uh, covering the vast northwest between Charters Towers and Mount Isa. So what you're saying is it's unlikely they could expand south. Look, I think that is a bit of a stretch, and, and they don't appear to me to be doing that. I mean, they are they are registered as a sort of a national party, but they, in reality, they are a North Queensland party, uh, and that's the region they know because you know other people will make fun of uh, uh, Bob Senior, uh, but um, he knows his his region, and so does Robbie as well. So. Um, they know what works and they know what uh, issues people will take note of. And you can be a laughing stock elsewhere, but, you know, they've got three people in the uh, state parliament. Ten minor parties ran candidates in some seats. None have made any real inroads, except we just spoke about Catter's Australia Party. United Australia Party and One Nation tanked on previous results. Why do you think that was? And do the smaller parties have a future? Yes. Um, so smaller parties come and go, as I said. We, we actually had a record number in, in uh, Queensland this time. So there is activity there. But the, the Animal Justice Party was less than a percent and so on. So they're really making a point rather than necessarily expecting to be uh, or to get representatives into parliament. Some of them will implode and then they will go up and down in terms of their capacity to contest. And I think One Nation has shown that it is, uh, it is very much a cyclical party. Uh, it was almost dead and then it revived and now it appears to be struggling again. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is um, in a crisis period, such as we have with COVID, voters do tend to re- return to major parties. That's not unusual. Uh, second, I think uh, we didn't see much of Pauline Hanson and as I mentioned before, you know, a party built around a person uh, is, is a particular form of a, of a small party, mm. and uh, we didn't see much of her in, in the campaign at all, and I think they just could not get the kind of traction uh, that uh, they have been able to in recent years. What is interesting, though, is 
they held Morani with uh, even a slight increase in the vote, I think, was the end result, or at least no great loss. What happens is a very interesting phenomenon in Australian politics is that we get a uh, where a small party or an independent is elected uh, at a general election, they become very hard to unseat. And that's what we saw. So even though minor party votes uh, went away, all of the people who were, so of the independents, Sandy Bolton at Noosa and uh, Three Catters and uh, One Nation, uh, plus the Green, the, the Green who was already in Parliament, mm. all were re-elected and most with an increase in their margin. You know, if you crack the barrier, you can hang in there. Whether the weather of sort of an organised party can continue to the same extent is another thing. Clive Palmer must surely bow out of politics after such a dismal result. We know he has deep pockets, but his negative campaign produced absolutely nothing. Why do you think voters soundly rejected him and, and United Australia Party? Well, I think his, his is the other form of the, uh, the personality party with a very big personality. Uh, and I think people are, some people are initially attracted by some of the colour and movement that goes with that and an idea that... Um, you know, we can shake up. We can shake up the state old conventional politics, and then uh, perhaps disillusion settles over time. And and all this colour and movement doesn't quite have the same appeal over time, and starts to look a bit silly. You know, they they move away from that, and that party is such a one person party, with all kinds of related people being the candidates and so on, and money coming from Palmer companies and so on to finance campaigns. But it has a very, very uh, shaky basis compared to, say, the Greens, you know, with their organisational structure. At the previous federal election, uh, Mr Palmer could still claim, well, you know, I campaigned against uh, Labor and, you know, I helped the LNP win or helped the coalition win. Well, can't even claim that now. And the vote was just so small as to be uh, infinitesimal. So I think... The only way I would see that party continuing is if the deep pockets come into play, uh, but it can't be for any tactical reason at this stage. One Nation was also deserted in droves. And if I can just draw your attention to the local seat of Ipswich West, where the One Nation candidate was Gary Duffy, who'd previously run for council, but not even his slightly raised local profile could help him there. And Jim Madden of the ALP actually increased his vote despite intense attacks on social media from Gary Duffy. Do you think we're seeing a diminishing of the influence of social media and, and are voters getting wise to the avalanche of misinformation? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think the answer is we don't quite know yet, but I think there is evidence uh, my, my, from some of my colleagues who look at social media stuff that essentially people do recognise, even if they're great users of social media, they do recognise that it's a forum that's not necessarily for reality and that all kinds of stuff can come in. Like, you know, it's like uh, seeing advertisements on television and being a bit interested in them, but recognising that you're being, uh, you know, you're being persuaded, as it were. Right. And I think rec recognising that all sorts of uh, things are going to come to you by social media. And as well as that, as I understand it, there could be a generational issue. And I've I've heard in uh, political thinking that people younger than myself will attribute certain social media to certain generations. So, you know, 
Facebook, uh, they, they believe, it's been taken over by, you know, boomers, so we yes. aren't going to use that. Mm-hmm. Insta- Instagram is millennials, so, you know, the younger ones are going to go on that. And then they're off to TikTok or some other media as well. So, in other words, if you were to have a social media strategy around politics, you would really have to keep moving through the different platforms to actually uh, reach a broader base. And I think as well as that, when you get into a um, – situation which there's a state crisis, how much you can do with sort of local fear-mongering and attack politics starts to diminish a bit as well. Very interesting because it's undoubtedly true that there'll be the next big thing in social media we haven't heard of yet by the time the next election rolls around. Yes, and particularly uh, uh, when the wrong generation tries to come into politics and use a particular platform and they look so uncomfortable on it that it's uh, often a very counterproductive move. Now that we have fixed four-year terms for the state, are we going to see less campaigning and more serious governing? I'm particularly thinking about the middle two years. I mean, that's always the argument that's put for the longer term. Many of the the other states now have the uh, four-year term, and I guess uh, citizens of those states would be would be wondering, is it really true that we get better government as a result of that? But look, I think it's fair to say that it takes some of the sting out of uh, uh, you know perpetual campaigning, so that there is a bit of a trough, and also there is that potential to get through a slightly bigger agenda, policy agenda, uh, if if governments are of a mind to do that. Mm. So I think there's what I would say is it's a possibility. Let's keep an eye and see if that's the reality. And of course. Our state election cycle will now be in sync with the US presidential elections. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and look, aren't we pleased about that? <laughs> Our honorary Professor Jeff Cockfield, thank you so much for joining Ipswich today. Pleasure. Ipswich Today is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. This podcast is also listener-supported. If you like what you hear, please make a once-only gift or regular donation to help keep it online. Just go to ipswichtoday.com.au and click the Donate button at the bottom of the page. You can subscribe for free and share this podcast from your favourite app, including iHeartRadio, or play Ipswich Today from your smart speaker. Music is supplied by Purple Planet Music. This is Alan Roebuck. Thanks for listening. Enjoying Ipswich today? Please share the love on your socials.